This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Um, as you've been filling out, this is the survey point prevalence survey question. A no is as important as a yes. Uh, please identify uh, your city um, so that we know where in the world you're reporting this from. Folks, it's a real privilege to introduce to you Dan Baruch, who's, as you see here, is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and is also affiliated with uh, the MIT Harvard uh, Joint Vaccine Initiative, where he is one of our lead uh, vaccine uh, scientists. Um, and uh, as you'll hear several days ago in a joint initiative uh, between uh, the United States federal government and Johnson and Johnson, um, the vaccine candidate that he's going to describe uh, now is being pulled forward. So Dan, it's a great privilege to have you. You are speaking to uh, colleagues uh, on six continents who are on the front lines and all of us have the same question. Uh, how are we gonna do with a vaccine? Well, thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm delighted to uh, be addressing all of you this evening. Uh, I'll just speak for a few minutes about our work on COVID-19 vaccine development and happy to take any questions. Um, I should say my lab is not originally a coronavirus lab. Uh, in fact, uh, we haven't done coronavirus work at all until January this year. Uh, we have a, lot, a long standing interest in HIV vaccine development as well as Zika vaccine development and uh, as well as for other pathogens. So we turned to this problem in the beginning of January this year, as many of you have as well. So the first question is why do we need a COVID-19 vaccine? And I think that uh, the first point is that a vaccine may actually be required to end this pandemic. And I think as days go by, it is becoming more likely that this might be the case. Uh, the second possibility is that if this epidemic is controlled effectively through public health measures or other means, then a vaccine could be very important to control future epidemics because there still will be many susceptible individuals to COVID-19, uh, as well as other related coronaviruses. And thirdly, the knowledge gained from a uh, vaccine program is an important contribution to science in terms of knowledge of protective immunity and uh, uh, correlates of immune protection. Next slide. So what are the key considerations for a vaccine? The first is technical feasibility. And there is much unknown about this virus. So we certainly cannot make any conclusions today. Uh, but what I can say is that so far, the technical feasibility questions appear to be tractable. The first point is natural immunity. We don't know for sure whether or not people who recover are then uh, um, uh, immune for subsequent re-exposure. Those data are hopefully gonna come soon. But what we do know is that most people who do get infected with COVID-19 uh, do recover. Uh, presumably their immune responses are able to control and clear this virus. So the experiment of nature has now been tried in you know, close to, you know, unfortunately a million people worldwide, probably actually many more than that. Um, uh, but the question specifically of whether people who recover have protective immunity remains to be determined. The second question is strain diversity. There are, there are reports of uh, mutations that have emerged in the coronavirus uh, sequence, including the spike protein. However, overall, these mutations so far have been relatively limited in nature. So unlike our work on HIV vaccines, where there is just enormous strain diversity, so far at least, it looks like the strain diversity question is a tractable problem. Whether that holds, of course, is a different question. And thirdly, the work on SARS and MERS that preceded COVID-19 identified uh, probably correctly that the spike protein is the key antibody target. So to some extent, all the vaccine researchers in the world um, uh, essentially knew where to target as soon as the sequence was available. There are many concerns, including uh, the potential of antibody-dependent enhancement of this disease. This, was seen, this has never been seen for COVID-19, uh, uh, but it has been seen in humans for an RSV vaccine a number, uh, quite a few years ago. And in some preclinical animal studies, of the original SARS-1, 
then there, there were some antibody-dependent enhancement of disease observed. So that's a question that will have to be addressed very clearly by vaccine developers, uh, likely in animal models with close monitoring clinical trials. The second concern is that the timelines for the COVID-19 vaccine development are faster than any other vaccine in history. However, they still may not be fast enough, uh, particularly since uh, here in the United States, we're seeing a surge of cases essentially right now. And um, uh, we, would like, we would love it if a vaccine were available for widespread deployment today, but it's not. So, so we and all the vaccine groups, I think are working uh, faster than ever before, uh, whether it's fast enough, um, uh, certainly not for the next several months. Next slide. So currently, there are over three dozen vaccine candidates currently be, being developed according to the WHO website. These include many of many platforms that are familiar, including DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines, protein-based vaccines, vector-based vaccines, and inactivated virus. The first vaccine that has entered clinical trials was an RNA vaccine from the biotech company in Cambridge called Moderna. And uh, we are very excited to see a first clinical trial um, being launched uh, 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 within weeks, not, with, not even months or years, but within weeks of the initial outbreak. However, what I should caution folks is that the timeline to initiation of a phase one trial is not the timeline to production and deployment of millions or billions of doses worldwide. Those are very different parameters. And so a vaccine for widespread clinical use is still a long way off. It's been estimated to be more than a year by pretty much everyone. Um, and if that occurs in that time frame, it'll be faster than any vaccine program in history. Next slide. So our own work locally, uh, we started working on this problem on January 10th, the same date that the uh, sequence was released. Uh, we worked through the weekend analyzing the sequence. On Monday, January 13th, we ordered synthetic genes and we started to uh, produce DNA vaccines and recombinant adenovirus vector-based vaccines expressing these antigens. On January 31st, uh, we signed a collaboration agreement to develop an AD26-based COVID-19 vaccine with Janssen, which is part of Johnson & Johnson. This really builds on our relationship with uh, Janssen as our industry partner for our HIV vaccine program and our Zika vaccine program uh, over the last uh, number of years. On February 6th, we immunized mice. On February 12th, we immunized our first set of rhesus monkeys. Um, at the request of the China CDC, we shared our DNA vaccines with them on February 14th. On February 24th, we produced a uh, viral challenge stock. And on March 2nd, we started infecting mice, ferrets, and monkeys to establish preclinical animal model for vaccine testing. The news as of a couple days ago is that GMP manufacturing of the AD26 vaccine has been initiated and uh, phase one studies are expected to launch in 2020. And in 2021, there's there's an expected massive scale up for emergency use authorization. So the news on Monday um, uh, was that Johnson & Johnson uh, has committed to invest a billion dollars, and that's billion with a B, and uh, they've committed to uh, produce one billion vaccine doses uh, with the hope that uh, clinical trials could start in September and there could be emergency use authorization in early 2021. This, of course, assumes that everything goes perfectly smoothly every step of the way, which, of course, is a big if. But nevertheless, for a large company to make this type of a bold commitment um, uh, gives me hope that we might actually have a vaccine uh, at the end of the day. Next slide. So I'll just spend, if I have another two, three minutes, I'll just spend a couple minutes talking about some of our animal modeling studies. Uh, we obtained a vial of virus from the CDC. Uh, they're based their their first passage of the virus uh, from the index patient from Washington State. We grew a challenge stock in uh, Vero E6 cells. Uh, you can see that there is CPE on day three, and we harvested the challenge stock on day five. Next slide. And in our first uh, titration study to see if uh, rhesus monkeys would be a good animal model, uh, we infected 13 rhesus monkeys, six to 12 year olds, which are adult monkeys. Um, mixed male and female animals. In nine animals, we did a dose titration uh, of one mil intranasally and one mil intratracheally at doses of 10 to the 6, 10 to the 5, and 10 to the 4 PFU. And we had four animals uh, uh, for which we're studying histopathology. So uh, briefly to summarize, 
vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 is proceeding faster than any pathogen in history. Multiple vaccines should be and are being pursued in parallel by many groups, since currently it is not clear which uh, vaccines will be most protective and most deployable. Non-human primate challenge models are being developed for preclinical vaccine testing, and collaboration is really critical for any successful vaccine development program uh, between academia, industry, government, and philanthropy. Thank you so much for sharing what you're doing. It's a very, it's not an overstatement to say that uh, everyone in the world is hoping for you and your colleagues in vaccine development. And I know you have to run, but you and I were exchanging emails over the weekend. And so can I ask you a knee bone is connected to the thigh bone vaccine question. Sure. Um, uh, you saw um, that Howard Bachner was interviewing your colleague, Greg Poland, at the Mayo Clinic. And so uh, Greg Poland made this point, which seemed to make sense to me. He said, I'm, I'm just a little concerned that the vaccine candidates are all targeting the S protein, the spike protein, um, because that's TH2 directed immune driver, as opposed to also including a TH1 proteins. And so, uh, you know, should we also not be looking at candidates that are including uh, apparently the N protein or the E protein or the M protein? Because he's concerned about the mutational force on the S protein if it's only targeting the spike protein. And, and that intuitively made sense to me. Is that, what, how, how do you respond to that? So there's, there's two points. So it's a very important question. There's two points. First is what is a TH1 versus TH2 response? And the second question is which proteins to target? And those are really two different questions. So the first question, TH1 versus TH2. For those people who are uh, savvy in CD4 T-cell immunology, those are two different uh, phenotypes of CD4 T-cell responses. That's a critical question for COVID-19 vaccines because the the antibody-dependent enhancement that was seen in the RSV vaccine in humans, as well as the SARS vaccine in animal studies about 15 years ago, were all correlated with Th2 responses and eosinophil infiltrates in the lung. So it would certainly make people more comfortable uh, if vaccines were to generate Th1-style immune responses. Um, uh, the question of um, uh, whether a TH1 or TH2 response is induced is more a function of the vaccine platform and less a function of the antigen. For example, uh, 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 proteins with alum adjuvant or whole inactivated virus particles typically would generate a TH2 response. It's thought that antibodies that might be sub-neutralizing um, in, in a TH2 environment might be responsible for the enhancement that was seen. Um, the gene-based vaccine approaches that involve intracellular production of antigen, such as DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines, and live recombinant vectors, generally induce a strong biased TH1 response. That's generally true regardless of the antigen. So uh, we are fairly confident that, 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 that the DNA, RNA, and vector approaches for COVID-19 vaccines will generate predominantly a TH1 response. Now it's not exclusively, but it is predominantly. Whether that alone will get around the anxieties or the potential of ADE is not yet known. The second question you pose, I think is really a different question. Is it, is it sufficient to target the spike protein? That's not really a TH1, TH2 question, but it is a very relevant question regardless because there clearly are many other viral proteins. The spike protein is the only protein on the surface envelope of the virus. So that's a natural initial target for antibodies. The question is, should, should vaccines also include some internal proteins, either for other forms of antibody responses or T cell responses? And that's a question that's not known. Um, certainly the, the, the first protein that people would think of would be to use a spike protein. Uh, whether additional pro, uh, internal proteins like the nuclear protein or other proteins might be useful for generating T cell responses, CD8 T cell responses, is a very important research question. And uh, we and others are going to explore those exact questions in the research lab and in animal models as vaccines targeting spike go forward. So our hope is that uh, vaccine targeting spike alone will be sufficient for uh, widespread and durable protection in humans. If that turns out not to be the case, then second generation vaccines will need to be developed to include some of the other proteins. Currently, I don't think any of the large clinical vaccine programs are including proteins other than uh, spike. 
but certainly on a research scale and maybe a small scale human scale, other vaccines will do that. So I think it makes sense to proceed with our best guess, which would be a simple spike protein vaccine first, uh, but yet continues to do research to see whether the addition of other proteins might provide added benefit. I know I speak for everyone on the call right now. Um, your work is so important and uh, from you know healthcare workers on the front line, we thank you for everything you're doing and uh, <laughs> go back to your lab. <laughs> well, thank you all. And uh, I would reiterate uh, all to you, all, everyone in this call as well, who is committed okay. to this. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Folks, I think many on the call, but not all, know uh, Trevor Duke. As you see on the screen there, he is the clinical director of the ICU at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And Trevor is especially known to us in the community as someone who also has um, not only given his time, but has studied uh, care practices um, in uh, resource limited environments and has advanced our knowledge and indeed is the author of the WHO manual on oxygen therapy and care delivery and mechanical ventilation in um, uh, low resource areas. So Trevor, I will turn this over to you and you tell me uh, when to advance. I wanted to talk about oxygen therapy in low income settings particularly um, because it's a challenge to know what advice to give to governments and what advice WHO and UNICEF and other agencies should give to governments. And I think it's particularly important that um, it has a strong scientific basis. And I think every, every, um, every recommendation is at the moment are extrapolations of science and evidence and epidemiology from elsewhere and past experiences and the emerging um, understanding that we have. But first of all, I want to discuss a, about the epidemiology to, to understand what respiratory support is, is um, useful. You first of all have to know your epidemic and this will be familiar to everybody. So I'm not going to go over it, but essentially, as far as we know, about 5% of all children who are infected with COVID-19, even if you have some concerns about the denominator, about probably no more than 5% require hospitalisation because of hypoxemia and probably about 0.6% if based on the China data require a, a critical form, uh, have a, a critical illness requiring intensive care. And I've been trying to understand the number of deaths that have occurred in children um, since this all started. And I believe now we are up to eight uh, with the death of the 13 year old boy in um, South London uh, yesterday. But I believe there's been eight deaths. So knowing your epidemic is very important. Next slide, please, Jeff. There's been some good studies out suggesting what, again, what proportion of children have severe and critical illness. And, and, um, and perhaps uh, one, one very good study, I thought, from, uh, again, from China, um, suggested that about 1.6% of all acute respiratory infection during that period, an extraordinary week it must have been in, in uh, that hospital in China, in one week, 366 children hospitalised with acute respiratory infection, of which uh, only six had COVID-19, and the rest, uh, many, many more, had influenza and uh, A and B. And in another sort of more focused series of children with COVID-19 from, uh, from China, suggesting that 17% were treated with oxygen, but that's obviously a, a, a more um, uh, hospitalised population. I thought it was interesting that lymphopenia was a key feature. Um, next slide, please, Jeff. So the question one needs to ask, given the low um, proportion of children with severe illness and, and even lower proportion with critical illness, the low proportion of, of children requiring intensive care, why might there be differences in children and staff affected with COVID-19 in low-income countries. And I think there's a number of reasons why it might be different, but I think we just don't know whether it will be different. And the first one, which is obviously people have talked about a lot, the, the high prevalence of HIV, tuberculosis and malnutrition in many low-income countries. Now, I don't think we know how this is going to play out at all, but to me, the data from South Africa seems a little bit encouraging um, in that South Africa being a fairly well-connected international nation, not, not as isolated as many other low-income countries, has currently 1,380 positive cases 
of which there have been 27 deaths. So, um, and at this stage, we're not seeing a, at least in that country where there has been a lot of international travel and international connection, we're not seeing a lot of um, a spike, I suppose, of, of, uh, of patients who have HIV or TB or malnutrition. That's not to say it won't occur and that these are not more susceptible populations than the populations that I, I deal with in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific are, have high rates of these conditions. But nonetheless, we're not seeing spikes. Lack of testing is clearly one problem in, you know, in many countries that are less affected at the moment or apparently less affected. There's lots of other um, demographic things that might mean that children are more affected, crowding in homes. Um, there, may, there are health system issues too, the open wards. I mean, there's no possibility of, of isolate, single room isolation. And there are, as in everywhere, but even more magnified in low income countries, there's a lack of personal protective equipment. And that's been a call from many low-income countries. The other thing I think that's interesting is the, is the evidence that there's fecal oral spread. There's potential for fecal oral spread of COVID-19 among children. And that data is pretty strong now out of China that certainly many children are excreting COVID-19 in stool, even, even sometimes longer than they're positive on a nasopharyngeal aspirate or a nasal swab. So with, with that in mind, I think the focus on children in low-income countries should predominantly be about protection for staff and oxygen supplies for the 5% of children who are hypoxic. And I'll, I'll explain why the focus should be on these two things. Next slide, please, Jeff. I wanted to, to, to understand about the type of respiratory support that is appropriate and, and should be on balance should be recommended. One needs to understand about the evidence for aerosol transmission of respiratory viruses among staff. If staff are going to work in an environment where um, they're more susceptible because PPE is not as good, because uh, all the reasons I've mentioned, then we have to understand about the potential for aerosol transmission of these respiratory viruses. And we, our, our yardstick for this in many ways is what's currently happening. But it's also, we go back to the SARS outbreak, and, and there's some very good studies, I think, that looked at um, the risk factors for aerosol transmission of SARS-1 among staff and among, uh, among other children. We know that more than 1,300 health workers were infected in Hong Kong, Hong Kong alone during the SARS outbreak. And the risk factors were if the beds were too close, if the bed space was less than one metre, if there was a lack of washing facilities for staff, but overwhelmingly, the biggest risk among, uh, for staff and the spread of SARS around wards was intubation and resuscitation performed on the ward. That was the overwhelmingly the biggest risk. Other risks were if staff worked at experiencing symptoms and if the index case, the index patient in a ward required oxygen therapy or required BiPAP, I guess before it was known that the patient actually had SARS. I thought there was a very good study looking at this from uh, also from Hong Kong that looked at 20 adults with SARS on mask non-invasive ventilation. And they surveyed, they followed up 105 nurses and doctors. And interestingly, none of those nurses or doctors seroconverted or became unwell. And that was with serology done uh, several weeks later. And that's, that's not to say that hospital transmission doesn't occur, didn't occur with SARS, many, it, it often did, but it's just a, it's perhaps just saying that non-invasive respiratory support is not necessarily the biggest risk factor in the context of good PPE. Can you, uh, next slide please, Jeff. What do we know about paediatric patients and, and infection um, the infection risk with SARS and healthcare workers? Well, another study from um, from Hong Kong also looked at 38 children with SARS and followed up 24, 26 health workers who worked in what they considered an ultra risk area. In that study, no health workers were developed clinical features suggestive of SARS and there was no nosocomial spread of uh, SARS coronavirus to other patients or visitors during a four month period. Again, as I said, 1300 health workers at least were affected by SARS and and SARS-2, the COVID-19, may be, be behaving in a very different way. But I think it's, there are some reassuring features about this 
in regard to certain types of respiratory support. Next slide, please, Jim. There's been some studies, so, all right, well, look, I'll just say that there's been studies done looking at different forms of oxygen therapy and um, Hudson masks disperse uh, particles to about somewhere between half and one meter from the end of the bed. Non-invasive respiratory support do, does about the same. And that's not too dissimilar to a normal cough. Next slide, please. So intubation is the biggest risk to staff. And as far as I can see, there's been no documented cases of transmission of SARS-1 or COVID-19 from pediatric patients to healthcare workers in the context of full precautions used in Hong Kong. Oxygen concentrators, as you know, extract, as I'm sure all of you know, extract atmospheric air, they remove nitrogen, and they produce high concentration oxygen. They can be plumbed into a ward such that you can get, deliver oxygen to multiple patients at once. Next slide, please. They can be run off solar power. That, the, the ward I showed you just before, the oxygen concentrators are being run off solar power, please. Next slide. I just want to show you something that suggests how effective just oxygen is. And this is the probability of death in severe pneumonia. In 703 children with uh, severe hypoxemia, all of them had oxygen saturations less than 85%. In this study, there was 46 deaths out of 703 children, so 6.5% die. But you can see that even many children, 18% of children had oxygen saturations less than 50% at presentation, and 85% of them survived. Next slide, please. And this shows you just how much oxygen you have to give. And it shows you the duration of oxygen uh, hypoxemia in children with severe pneumonia. So this is a study of uh, 1116 children in which there were 65 deaths, so 5.8%. And even at 10 days, 19% were hypoxic, but 83% survived if you provided enough oxygen. At 20 days, 6.8% were still hypoxic, and they 83% survived if you provided enough oxygen. And even at 30 days, 3.5% were hypoxic and 84% survived when we provided enough oxygen. Next slide, please. So I would say you need to give oxygen to children. And if they're still hypoxic, turn up the oxygen flow to three or four liters per minute. Beyond that, nasal secretions will dry out and put a surgical face mask on, mask on the patient. Next slide, please. What to do if a child's still hypoxic? Well, some hospitals in low-income countries can do CPAP, and if they can do it, they, can, they should do it. But I'm, I'm not saying it's time to roll out CPAP or high flow in any low-income countries. I think it's time to give oxygen therapy really well. Next slide, please. That child I just showed you is getting CPAP via an oxygen concentrator. CPAP and other forms of oxygen, uh, high-flow oxygen therapy can consume a lot of oxygen. And if you use that, then you might exhaust the oxygen supplies. I think staff protection, as I said at the start, is paramount. We should put a surgical face mask on any patient with proven COVID-19 if they're on oxygen therapy. We need to do PPE really well. We should isolate patients as best as we can. And I think that many hospitals need to install exhaust fans. We're not going to have negative pressure rooms, but exhaust fans can be helpful. Wash your hands. We all know this. We need to restrict visitors to the ward. This is the sort of advice that needs to go to hospitals. Disinfect all equipment with 0.5% uh, sodium hypochloride. And everywhere, everywhere, rapid testing with Gene Expert. Now, this test, some of you might know, has been rolled out to many low-income countries for use to detect TB and multidrug-resistant TB particularly. And the company has made a, a COVID-19 cartridge, which um, is is where some low-income countries might just have an advantage over, over other countries in getting rapid testing. Next slide, please. These tests are highly in demand. So look, in summary, 5% of children are hypoxic and most will improve with oxygen and with time. Hospitals should do what they do well. They should do what they do well. So they should do oxygen really well. They should do infection control really well and they should protect staff. They should have pulse oximetry for detecting hypoxemia, and they should follow the emergency signs in the WHO Hospital Care for Children books. I don't think now is the time to be 
buying lots of ventilators for children in low-income countries or scaling up CPAP or scaling up high flow or trial, trialing novel methods in low-income countries. And I think unless you have a properly equipped ICU, forget about intubation in a low-income setting. Because even in ICU, I think less is more usually. Less is more. I, I would just say as a last thing that I think in low-income settings, disruption to health services and general social disruption is likely is likely to kill more children than COVID-19. That's a sad fact, but it probably is true. Thanks, Jeff. Well, uh, Professor Trevor Duke uh, from the Royal Children's Hospital in Australia. Trevor, you have the respect and admiration of all your colleagues around the world for your methodical, careful approach to understanding care practices for low-resourced um, countries and areas. And uh, this has been a terrific overview. Thank you. Um, we are going to turn now to um, Los Angeles, California, where our colleague uh, Robbie Kamani um, is going to take us through um, the ARC and uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine guidance on ventilation for COVID and considerations for uh, pediatric ICUs. All right. So thanks, Jeff. Uh, this has really been great to hear what other people have had to say about topics that I know uh, very little about. Um, we're going to talk about um, the mechanical ventilation guidelines that came out from the uh, AARC as well as surviving sepsis, SCCM. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Jeff. Um, so the the goal here is to give some pediatric perspective on the AARC and the SCCM recommendations for mechanical ventilation with, of course, the caveat that none of us have really cared for a lot of these patients on mechanical ventilation, especially pediatric patients. So we'd like to give you our thoughts and perspective about how this may apply to pediatric patients. And in addition, where appropriate, you know, a lot of pediatric intensivists are now being asked to take care of adult patients with COVID-19. So what should we be thinking about in managing these adult patients? Next slide. Um, so I think what's really important is that although many of these patients meet the diagnostic criteria for acute respiratory distress syndrome, just because they have COVID-19 doesn't necessarily mean they should be treated like all other ARDS patients. And it seems like there are potentially different phenotypes of these patients, some of which have a very substantial interstitial pneumonia type picture, while others may have the more classic ARDS appearance with really significant loss of end expiratory lung volume and compromise in compliance. And, and in fact, that's probably not the majority of patients. That's maybe a, a subset of patients. And many of these patients have really significant interstitial disease. And what that leads to is less ability to have alveolar recruitment um, and more preservation in their respiratory system compliance. And the pathobiology that's happening seems to be potentially a little bit different because of this severe viral pneumonia. Many of them have uh, very significant um, increases in alveolar dead space, which may be related to microvascular thrombosis. Um, and in many ways, I think about these patients from my reading of the literature, again, um, it, like we have some of our own pediatric patients that may have very significant viral disease. I think uh, many of you have probably had, you know, these uh, circumstances where you have this child who's got a viral pneumonia who's very hypoxemic, but not really much recruitable lung. You turn up the PEEP and things seem to get worse. It worsens their compliance. It doesn't improve their hypoxemia. And, and that seems to be a, a subset of these patients. So the surviving sepsis group, as well as the AARC and SCCM have these guidelines. I'll refer you to these publications for you to look at them specifically, but we're going to go through them here. Next slide, Jeff. Um, and so they have recommendations specifically with regards to non-invasive ventilation and high flow to maintain strict infection control processes. And I think the most important point here is to not delay intubation, especially in a lot of these adults. They have very rapidly progressive and evolving disease. So if the patient is evolving quickly, proceed to intubation quickly. Um, high flow nasal cannula is what they recommend over non-invasive ventilation, but regardless of which uh, you choose, uh, go quickly to intubation if the patient's failing. Next slide. Um, they also recommend tidal volumes of four to eight mLs per kilo predicted body weight in either volume or pressure control. Conventional mechanical ventilation is recommended, uh, maintaining plateau pressures less than 30 centimeters of water. And they do recommend a higher PEEP strategy, and the AARC in particular recommends using the ARDSNET high PEEP FiO2 table, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. Next slide. 
And finally, they recommend prone positioning um, in the face of, of refractory hypoxemia, which defined as a PF ratio less than 150. Next slide, Jeff. So this is what their recommendations are. And so our questions were, you know, how do we think uh, pediatricians should apply these recommendations if they're managing adult patients with, uh, with COVID-19 or even potentially pediatric patients? Okay, next slide. So um, what we're going to do as we go through here is talk about what we think um, and whether we agree or not with the recommendations. So for NIV, we largely agree with the AARC recommendations. Um, they advocate early intubation, which we think is appropriate. And in general, they recommend high flow over non-invasive ventilation. And there are a few reasons why this may be appropriate. There's some infection concerns, which may be the same with NIV. Um, but the bigger issue is that because of the sort of rapidly evolving nature of the disease for many of these patients, they're at high risk to develop uh, self-inflicted lung injury, especially if their work of breathing is high. So if the patient's failing high flow nasal cannula, the move to intubation should occur quickly. Now, there's also some theoretical advantages of high flow nasal cannula in the settings of very high dead space. Um, and there are some uh, adult data out of Europe with NIV about helmet NIV, um, which shows some potential benefits, but many of us don't have access, unfortunately, to helmet NIV. So I think we have to be cautious about that extrapolation. Next slide, Jeff. Um, so PEEP management onto invasive ventilation. And here's where we, we think we have to be a little bit different and be a little more cautious than what the AARC and Surviving Sepsis Group recommends. So they recommend a high PEEP strategy should be used on all these patients with management based on the ARDSNET high PEEP FiO2 table. Uh, we think a different approach is necessary. Next slide, Jeff. Um, and in particular, our recommendations would be to start with the low PEEP FiO2 table from the ARDSNET, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And that's because the high PEEP table may be harmful in a subset of these patients that have uh, more of that interstitial disease with less recruitable lung. Regardless of where you start with the PEEP, uh, we do recommend that the PEEP titration needs to be done carefully and should be individualized for the, for the patient, looking closely at what their respiratory system compliance is. So if you've got a patient with very poor respiratory system compliance that may have more classic ARDS and have recruitable lung, then this is the patient that would be appropriate to try a higher PEEP strategy on. But you need to be careful to look to see that the lung recruits. So how do you know the lung recruits? You see the compliance improve, or we get an expected oxygenation improvement without any real significant decrement um, on their hemodynamic response. Next slide. Now, we do recommend starting with this low PEEP FiO2 table. And so uh, this is a graph that maybe some of you have seen before. In green is the low PEEP FiO2 table by the ARDSNAT. PEEP is on the y-axis. FiO2 is on the x-axis. In green is what those recommendations would be. Um, in gray are what we typically do in pediatric practice. This is from observational data. And what we see is we, we're typically below it at, when the FiO2 is high at 70% or so. And just to orient you about what the low PEEP table would recommend is that if you're on 70% FiO2, the recommended PEEP is 14 centimeters of water. So that's not really low PEEP. That's still a reasonably high PEEP strategy, but uh, not as high as, next slide, Jeff, the high PEEP FiO2 table. So here is the high PEEP FiO2 table. And what you'll notice as an example is if you're on 50% FiO2, the recommended PEEP for the high PEEP table is 20 centimeters of water. You're on 35% FiO2, the recommended PEEP is 14 centimeters of water. So a lot higher than what we would do in normal pediatric practice. Next slide. Now, um, where did that data come from, right? Where did those recommendations come from with AARC and with uh, surviving sepsis? Well, it came from adult RCTs that were done in more classic ARDS more consolidation of the lung, where the hypoxemia is a reflection of the loss of end expiratory lung volume. So with high PEEP strategies, you may recruit lung. And certainly the meta-analyses in, in adult ARDS show that the patients with more severe hypoxemia with that more classic form of ARDS benefit from the high PEEP strategy or the high PEEP FiO2 table compared to the low PEEP FiO2 table. But notice that those that have a less severe hypoxemia, in fact, potentially have a switch in the signal and may, may be harmed. And, and this is why we think we need to be more careful with these COVID-19 patients with severe hypoxemia because they may not have that classic recruitable lung that we'd see with other forms of, of ARDS. Next slide. Um, 
And, and this is consistent with what uh, Luciano Gattinoni has reported um, out, of, uh, out of Italy, where he was taking care of these um, uh, COVID patients. And I think we all respect Dr. Gattinoni's knowledge on lung physiology and ARDS. And in fact, he recommended in those that have more preserved respiratory system compliance, the ones that have this more patchy ground glass opacity appearance, that the PEEP should be limited to eight to 10 centimeters of water because the high PEEP strategy has hemodynamic effects with impairment and venous return. And many of these COVID patients have evidence of myocardial disease. Um, so we have to be particularly cautious about uh, maneuvers that may uh, you know, impair their, their venous return. Now there is a subset of these patients that seem to have much more classic ARDS, where they have you know, uh, potentially potential for recruitable lung. These may be the patients that have self-inflicted lung injury that were you know, breathing hard for a long period of time or some ventilator-induced lung injury. And in those patients, this high PEEP approach may be, may be more appropriate. Next slide, Jeff. So um, that's PEEP. Let's move on to tidal volume. Um, so AARC recommends uh, tidal volumes of four to eight mLs per kilo using an assist control mode. And in general, we agree with this approach uh, at, that it's appropriate in children and, and in adults if you're taking care of them. Next slide, Jeff. And this is in fact entirely consistent with what our recommendations are out of, out of the pallet group that really tidal volume should be managed as a function of respiratory system compliance. So patients that have more preserved compliance can achieve a higher tidal volume or should be managed with a slightly higher tidal volume, five to eight mLs per kilo, but those with more severe impairments in respiratory compliance should have the lower tidal volume of three to six mLs per kilo. Now, my personal belief, and this is personal, is that we should be using a pressure control strategy in these patients because that allows for um, adjustment of the tidal volume based upon you know, the, the pressure that's applied and the compliance of the lung. Um, I would put a plug in to say that these patients, many of these patients have high dead space fraction, so we should evaluate them. And this is a way that you can do it with the alveolar dead space fraction, which is the PCO2 minus the end tidal CO2 on time-based capnography. So you don't need a special volumetric capnography divided by the PCO2, and that can be followed over time as a marker to see if the therapies are, are, are beneficial. Next slide. Um, so where did this slightly higher tidal volume above 6 mLs per kilo come from? Um, well, certainly this was also uh, demonstrated, you know, Gattinoni had the same observations that in some of these patients with the more preserved respiratory system compliance, we can use tidal volumes higher than 6 mLs per kilo, and certainly the Chinese data also support this high dead space fraction and more effective CO2 clearance uh, with slightly higher tidal volumes because there was a lot of dead space ventilation and you weren't getting a lot of benefit from just increasing the rate as an example. Next slide, Jeff. Um, and, and certainly when you use pressure control ventilation, this is some of our data, that, that the tidal volume that's achieved is a function of the compliance of the lung or the severity of the lung. So those that have the more severe impairments in compliance or here lung injury score, compliance is one of those components. <laughs> the ones that achieve that, that lower tidal volume. Next slide. So um, what's important there, uh, of course, is that if you're using a pressure control strategy or really regardless of the strategy, that we do tidal volume uh, limitation in reference to inspiratory pressure limitation as well. And so the plateau pressure should be maintained less than 30 is the AARC recommendation, and we agree with this, and this is entirely consistent with what was recommended from PALIC. Next slide. Uh, prone positioning. So uh, ARC and SCCM do recommend prone positioning after if the patient has a PF ratio less than 150. And if you're caring for an adult in your pediatric ICU, we believe this is appropriate and we should use this. Um, to be honest, it's not clear whether we should do this in children or not. Next slide. Um, and, and that's because there are multiple mechanisms by which prone positioning may help in a severely hypoxemic patient. Um, likely the major mechanism of benefit in this scenario with COVID-19 is change, changes in pulmonary perfusion and VQ matching. Um, and that might be the real benefit that's coming from prone positioning here. The other potential benefits are providing some alveolar recruitment by taking the weight of the heart uh, or the mediastinal structures off of the lung or reducing inequalities in regional time constants, which may result in a, a lower risk of, lung, of ventilator-induced lung injury. And while those mechanisms may be present, we think the bigger mechanism that prone positioning is helping here is, is, is with regards to VQ mismatch. Next slide. 
And in fact, if you look at some of Gatnoni's early work, um, you know, from 2003, where he looked at the effect of prone positioning and, and the survival benefit that came, what was interesting to me is that the, those that have a PaO2 response, so those that improve their oxygenation, there's actually no benefit uh, in terms of a survival advantage, whereas those who have a PCO2 response, and now these are patients that were managed in a volume control mode with a set minute ventilation, actually had a survival advantage. So these may be the patients where you're reducing the dead space fraction and i.e. improving pulmonary perfusion. Next slide. Um, so our recommendations for caring for children um, with COVID-19 with prone positioning, there's, there's no clear data to guide our practice, but we feel like we should be consistent here with what the PALIC recommendations are and the risk benefit profile that um, you should consider it in the moderate severe patients, especially if you have the available resources, i.e. the PPE, and the proper training. Um, and so here, um, you know, there are some resources that are available. I don't know if Martha's on the call, but Heidi is, is on the call, that within the PROSPECT study, uh, they have a lot of training videos uh, for how to do proper prone positioning, and you can send an email to, the, uh, to that email address there if you're interested in getting some of these videos. Um, and I think it's important that the that the mechanism, because the mechanism of action may be related to improvements in perfusion, that there is a rotation that occurs um, every 12 to 16 hours. Uh, Heidi, I don't know if you want to comment now or you want to wait till the end. I think you mentioned all the salient features, and that website is there if uh, people want to access the training videos or find out about prospect trial as well. But Yes, the adult data definitely showing the cycling being an important fe feature, and you, uh, these adults that are successful are not prone for 20 hours a day like in some of the other original prone trials. All right, so neuromuscular blockade, AARC recommendations are to start first with intermittent neuromuscular blockade, um, but then consider continuous uh, for up to 48 hours for patients that have significant dyssynchrony, i.e. those at highest risk for self-inflicted lung injury, those with high plateau pressure prone or those that need prolonged deep sedation. And, and I think in general, we believe this recommendation is appropriate and also consistent uh, with the PALIC recommendations. Next slide, Jeff. Nitric oxide. So here's where there's a slight departure for us. Um, so the SCCM and AARC recommend against the use of nitric oxide. And certainly with sort of classic adult ARDS, that uh, there's probably appropriate evidence for that. Um, what Dr. Gattinoni has noted is that we should consider using nitric oxide uh, if it improves pulmonary perfusion, and since that may be a major mechanism at play, um, we agree with that recommendation and, and want it to be consistent with our pediatric practice as well as the, the pediatric uh, SCCM surviving sepsis recommendations. So we would recommend at this point you, it, for those patients that uh, are still hypoxemic after neuromuscular blockade and prone that you consider a trial of inhaled nitric oxide but that it's a trial. And so if there's no significant improvement in either oxygenation or dead space response, that then the nitric is discontinued. Next slide. Recruitment maneuvers. So um, AARC uh, has uh, recommended uh, uh, using recruitment maneuvers uh, if the patient has persistent hypoxemia after prone and neuromuscular blockade. But in particular, they recommend doing this as um, a sustained inflation over stepwise recruitment maneuvers, and that's because the ART trial and FARLAP trial um, have shown harm in stepwise recruitment maneuvers, especially with respect to hemodynamics. So if you're caring for an adult patient, uh, we would recommend the same approach, not to use a stepwise recruitment maneuver. Uh, next slide. Now, for pediatrics, um, the sustained inflation maneuvers are probably not very beneficial. So uh, if you are going to do a recruitment maneuver in pediatrics, we would say you would do it with a stepwise approach, but this should not be something that you're trying if you don't have any experience doing it. Um, so really it should only be considered in those with severe ARDS after neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning, and if you have, an, have some experience with recruitment maneuvers. Um, but that you watch very closely to see if the patient recruits, and if there's any change in hemodynamics or a drop in oxygenation that you terminate that recruitment maneuver immediately. Next slide. Um, high frequency. So um, the AARC basically uh, did not comment on this other than to say they prefer conventional mechanical ventilation. There are certainly risks with high frequency because the exhaled gases are released into the environment. Um, there are some adaptations that the company, that Bayer, um, has 
uh, developed for a filtered circuit to the 3100. So if you're going to do it, I would certainly say you should use that filtered circuit. Um, but the bigger concern is that, um, you know, a lot of these patients don't have recruitable lungs. So if you're trying this on that more interstitial pneumonia type patient, it may be potentially harmful and certainly the adult studies don't show benefit. So here we recommend against using high frequency in either adults or children with COVID-19. Um, and I'll pause there and see, John, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that or you want to wait till the end there. Hi, everyone. Let me just make a quick comment. Robbie, great sterling summary per usual. Uh, this is a tough one. Um, there are a lot of high frequency enthusiasts on the call. Um, but I remember Tom Stewart, who was an early adopter of high frequency in Toronto, giving a lecture about his experiencing, experience during the SARS outbreak in Toronto and how sick healthcare providers, uh, including two of his intensive care colleagues and two respiratory therapists got uh, while managing patients on high frequency. So as Robbie mentioned, there are uh, filtered circuits available, but there is no doubt that using high frequency at 40 and 50 liters per minute bias flow is an aerosol generating procedure. And since this is primarily going to be uh, an adult disease, I really can't imagine exposing your colleagues uh, to an aerosol uh, for limited benefit. Thanks, Chuck. All right, I think there's two slides left. Fluid management, simple conservative fluid management strategy. We, we agree with that wholeheartedly. Next slide. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about putting multiple patients on a single ventilator, and, and so many organizations have uh, put out statements against this practice, and there's a really nice summary about why you shouldn't do it, and this is a you know, summary of those, of those points, and we agree completely that, that really we should not be doing this because it would make it really hard to manage these sickest patients that we have, and especially with these inequalities in, in compliance that they have, it, it may be uh, potentially really harmful to these patients, and there's ethical concerns. Um, the AARC also recommends uh, um, a few other topics, and I'll just point you to their literature if you want to learn more about these, like limitations of the stockpile of ventilators that we have in the United States, how you may modify a BiPAP machine to provide invasive ventilation, humidification, et cetera. Um, so I, we agree generally with those principles and would just refer you to those documents. And then the last slide. And the last thing I'll say is I, I think one of the potential ways we can really help this situation is to get our patients off the ventilator as soon as we can. So I think it's crucially important at this time to be thinking about your standardized protocols for ventilator management and weaning and doing spontaneous breathing trials to get these patients off. And if I just may make one last statement, you know, many of you may know we've been doing a randomized trial here at, at CHLA about computer decision support in, a, in ARDS. Um, and it's a single center trial, but we just started a partnership with Amazon to make our a limited version of this tool available widely for, for use with COVID patients. Um, and it implements both adult and uh, pediatric arts, sort of ARDSnet rules, adult ARDSnet rules. So if you may be interested in, in having this kind of tool to help with this pandemic, it's sort of emergency use, please send us an email at that email address. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.